0: Well, we're in the midst of a series entitled Jesus Revealed, and we want you to get a clear picture of Jesus, as clear as possible. Uh, We want you to get the right caricature of Christ, because we know that not everything we've heard is true. Uh, Don't believe everything that has been said. You've heard of fake news, right? Not so true news. We've heard a lot of that in the last couple of years. And I don't know about you, but I am fascinated, intrigued, entertained when I walk through the, the uh, cashier aisle there at Publix or Kroger's. Because to the left, what do you see? You see tabloids, right. And so do we believe everything that's in the tabloids? Let's take a look at just a couple of them I found. Uh, I want to take a look. One is NASA takes photo of ghosts in space. Now we know NASA is real. We know space is real. I'm just glad the ghosts are up there. Okay, we're not having to deal with them. What's another one? Another one is uh, surgeon cut off my head, cut my head off, and I sewed it back on. You should have seen the picture on this. And uh, and and in this particular one, well, I'm just I'm not going to. As your pastor, I am not referring that. Physician, I really am not. Uh, but can you imagine sewing it back on? All right, another one. Can't believe everything you hear. Horse born with human face. Well, no awards for that horse at the county fair. You know, I mean, really, kind of, kind of strange. I mean, I believe there was a horse, no human face, only partly right. Okay, last one. Uh, man fries eggs. On his bald head. Um, For some of you, you may feel like you're gifted if you're bald. That's great. This definitely was a hothead. Um, And and what I want to say about that is the guy was bald. He had eggs. But I'm not sure it got that high. You can't believe everything you hear. And yet scripture says the truth will set us free. What is truth? And what is true about Jesus? Well, in this series, Jesus Revealed, we've been looking at the book of Matthew. And Matthew's main goal, there you go, Matthew's main goal is to make a compelling argument that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Savior of the world, that he's the long-expected Redeemer that had been prophesied. And so as he records different events and teachings, that is his objective. That is his purpose. And we find that those early Jewish leaders and believers and converts of Jesus gathered around him, and they were looking for community. They were looking to be guided and shepherded and, and so Jesus reveals himself initially through calling them. He said, Simon, Peter. Simon, Peter must have been from the south. Simon, Peter, and, and, and James, and John, follow me. And in that calling, Christ revealed himself. But today we look at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. And in that, it's not just one sermon. As Jesus gathers them together, as he sees that they are sheep that are lost and need teaching, it's not just one sermon. Many scholars believe this is a compilation of many teaching moments and sermons. And Matthew describes Jesus in this teaching as somewhat radical. Matthew helps us. as as we listen to Jesus, bring in that Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Old Agreement, the law, and, and overlaps it with the New Covenant. You'll remember when we share in communion, Jesus said this is the blood of the New Covenant, the new law. And he marries these in a wonderful way in this sermon this Sermon on the Mount. And so he's on this hilltop, and he's speaking to these that are very teachable. And I just wonder if there were religious leaders who were in the background where they could hear. And there is the Sea of Galilee, not far away. And as he's teaching, he makes some difficult kinds of statements. One of them, he says, is, You have heard it said... But I say to you, and he will quote a law. He shows us a parallelism in the style of writing. There is the doctrine of human beings and the doctrine of God. There is the importance of inward righteousness contrasted to outward righteousness. There are gathering things of earth and having heavenly treasures. He addresses in the Sermon on the Mount anxiety anxiety and trust the narrow way and the wide way. And so there's this contrasting parallelism style that is likened to wisdom literature in the Old Testament. And Matthew writes all of this out and helps to distinguish for us how Jesus is contrasting a religion of olden days to a fresh new covenant the ways of the Pharisees and Sadducees and legalism to grace that is offered in Christ and a new law for living. And so we see this contrast between outward appearance and inward transformation of the heart. And Jesus makes this hard statement. He said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees or Sadducees or scribes, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, you have to understand the audience. They have been living by the law, and many of them were perfectionistic. They wanted to dot every I and cross every T. And so in their interpretation of this, I I just wonder what they were thinking. Jesus, does this mean that if a Pharisee offers one pure dove, I need to offer two? If one blameless or uh, clean lamb is presented, do I have to double that? I mean, what do you mean by exceeding the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes? So Jesus addresses this in a very special way. He says, I want you to take that law, and I want you to look at its purposes, but I want you to take it a next step, and I will help you with that next step. Take a look with me in your scripture at chapter 5 on the Sermon on the Mount. You'll have it in, it's on the screen, and you'll have it in your uh, bulletin. Now, realizing the old law has been established that these who had been listening to Jesus have been steeped and schooled in this law. Some of them are scholars. And so this is so countercultural religiously to what they're used to. Jesus says, You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, reference back to the law. The law said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And he goes on to say, that you may be children of your heavenly Father. He causes his Son to rise on evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Then he goes on to speak to love again. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? I mean, how much of that is really a demand on you. It's easy to love those that you love. But I'm calling it as something greater. I mean, the tax collectors know how to love who they love. That's interesting in this that Matthew is a tax collector. And he's recording these words and he says, You know, even the tax collectors, even people like me, have been doing this. And if you only greet your own people, What are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? And so Jesus is saying, you've heard it said, love. I'm saying to you, love your enemies. Pray for your enemies. Forgive your enemies. I mean, when we put God in a box and when we put religion in a box, it keeps us really safe. Jesus makes it really unsafe because he says, get outside of your legalism. Get outside of your critical spirit. Be careful how you judge lest you be judged. If a man asks for your shirt, give him your cloak as well. I want you to do something more, something special that comes from the heart. Not out of just compliance to the law. And so one of the questions that came up in our pastor's discussion this week is, do we have to love somebody that we don't like? And the answer is yes, that's right. I mean, there are some people that we just don't like. I mean, they can be obnoxious, they can be unkind, they can be rude, they can be selfish. And what Jesus is saying is, don't love them just out of compliance. Love them because I first loved you. You may have heard it said to do this, but I'm asking you to do this, which is based out of your heart. And your relationship with me. And so Jesus is revealing himself through his teaching, but he's also revealing himself in that he lived it out. He walked his talk, he was able to love his enemies, he was able to love those who persecuted him, who wounded him, who hurt him, who put him on a cross who spit in his face and mashed a crown of thorns into his forehead and punctured his side. He was able to say on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's an upside down kind of kingdom. He revealed himself in the teaching, but he revealed himself in the way he gave of himself. Now that last verse is a strange verse and it too is a hard saying verse 48 be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect now this this causes all kinds of alarms to go off in me because i am a perfectionist just this week i had a paper due i'm I'm taking a class it's a continuing education course and I have to submit a paper. I hadn't written, I've written sermons, but I hadn't written papers in a while. And so I'm cranking this thing out, and I'm like, I don't like the way that sounds. And so I rework it, and the deadline is getting closer. And I'm like, that that's not good. That's not good enough. And and so my perfectionism is eating me up, and it's creating this anxiety in me. And finally, I just had to surrender it and say, will you, will you finish it? No. I... I I finally had to say, enough is enough. I have done my very best. I've given up myself. I've made my best effort. Here it is. So I sent it to the professor online, as was. And there is a perfection in me, a perfectionism in me that can sometimes be an obsession That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about without mistakes. He's not talking about somehow not being human. He's talking about a perfection of love. Where love supersedes the law. You see, that was kind of an upside down way of seeing things for those religious leaders and Jewish believers that had been steeped so long in the things that they had heard but weren't fully true with the new covenant. There's a a mother in our church that tells the story about her daughter, Her daughter is in fourth grade, and the daughter brought her some flowers, beautiful tulips. And and she was walking home from school, and then she presented those tulips. And this mother thought, what? This is great. I mean, this fourth grader, who's a preteen, moving towards adolescence, still likes me. And she has presented flowers to me. What an act of love. So she said, will you tell me how to go back to where you found these? Because she was thinking, I'm concerned where these came from. And she traced the steps back with her daughter to someone's yard where she had pulled the flowers. She had committed a theft. She had trespassed. She had broken the law. But in an act of love, she showed herself in a good way in her love and affection for her mother. One of the things I find about Jesus as I study his life, as he is revealed in the scripture, if you will go back to the stories, so often you will find that he puts people paramount to the law. People are more important than the law. The woman who is confronted by religious leaders and other men about her adultery. Jesus stands with her, and he challenges those who've been steeped in law. Oh, she should be stoned. And he said, oh, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. Now, he realized that there was corrective work that needed to be done in her life because he said, go and sin no more. But he had compassion for her above the law. Pastor John Horton, who's one of our retired pastors, used to be on staff, said it this way. He said, salvation will cost you nothing Discipleship will cost you everything. Let me say that again. Salvation will cost you nothing. The work of Christ on the cross and redemption and the forgiveness of our sins is a free gift, unmerited favor toward us. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. But we receive it based on His grace. But discipleship, will cost us everything. One of the things I shared with our confirmation students is that there is a process that unfolds in our spiritual journey where we, we see that Christ died for us and he becomes our Savior and our Redeemer. And, and we can celebrate that and give thanks for that, and that's a free gift. And then there is a step towards lordship, where in salvation, Jesus gets our attention. In the grace that leads us to salvation, and then in salvation, God gets our attention. We turn Godward. We look to God. And then there's a, a process that happens where we give him lordship in categories of our lives. And then ultimately, we surrender and we say, Lord, you're my life. I give you Everything. I surrender to you. I like what East Stanley Jones said, a missionary. Salvation is when I get all of God and sanctification, holiness, Christian perfection, being driven by love, the law of love, God gets all of me in successive chapters of my life. And I want to stand here today and tell you that even in this season of my life, I'm having to surrender in ways that I've not surrendered before. I'm having to give God some things that maybe I haven't given before. I'm having to do some things that maybe I haven't had to do before. it's rocking my world. It's turning my world upside down. Jesus has called us to an upside down kingdom. And it seems counterintuitive. It definitely is countercultural, cultural and it runs against our flesh. The scripture says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will raise you up. That runs against our thinking. When you die to self is when you really have life. Do you see the parallelism? That when you surrender to Christ, your capacity to love is expanded. Well beyond the law. The British preacher, William Temple, explained it well because when I come to this 48th chapter where Matthew records the words of Jesus, therefore, which is a summation passage, which points to the passages above it, therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, which the Greek word there means mature or grow or progress, In maturity, Paul helps us with that in the New Testament as he writes the New Testament churches and says, I once thought and acted like a child, but now I have become a man. He is speaking of maturity and moving forward. How do we do that? How in my own strength am I able to live out this Christian maturity? To rise above the law? And to live based in a love that is in my heart for God. William Temple said this. He said, I would love to create great plays and dramas like William Shakespeare. Yet if I tried, I'd probably fail. Because I am not William Shakespeare. How I wish I could live a life of love like Jesus Christ, to be obedient to a heavenly Father, to love the world offering compassion to those in need. How I wish that for me. But I could never do that because I am not Christ. Yet, if you could take and place the genius of William Shakespeare in me, I would be a great playwright. I could script. Dynamic dramas. I could be prolific as him. And if you were able to place the spirit of Jesus Christ in me, I could love like him. And so here's the good news. We don't have to do this on our own. Because the spirit of Christ abides with us, that other person of the Trinity, supernatural things happen to us and through us in love. And we're able to move away from a legalistic, judgmental, critical spirit toward others and even ourselves to a quality, I think that's what he's talking about, a quality of love that is described as Christian depression. Perfection. And so to me, we come to this place where we're looking at Jesus and we're looking at love and we can't always believe some of the things we've heard, some of it is truth, but here's the good news. Christ says, I'm doing a new thing in you and I will lead you and I will guide you. And as you live in love, I will reveal myself more fully to you as you surrender. Let's pray together.